Hello and welcome to the Green Podcast, episode number two. In this episode, I speak to David Lavalley, who's an expert on the environmental impact of the mining of the oil sands in Alberta in Canada. David created a documentary on that topic called White Water Black Gold, which you can find online at whitewaterblackgold.com. In this episode, we discuss many different aspects of the oil sands, including what they are, the different types of mining that occur there, how the oil sands impact everything from water to wildlife to the nearby communities to the worldwide economy. And also, we discuss what some of the solutions are to the problems created by the oil sands, including alternate energy sources and actions that anyone can take to help effect change. You can visit us online at thegreenpodcast.com to find links to all of the resources mentioned in this episode and to hear about new episodes once we release them. And now, here is my discussion with David Lavalley. Welcome to the Green Podcast. My name is Justin Clark. With me is David Lavalley, who spent three years creating the documentary White, Blo- White Water Black Gold, which investigates the environmental impact of oil production in Alberta's oil sands in Canada. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, so before we get into discussing the documentary itself, I wanted to ask you about a bit about your past and at what point in your life it was that you first started to care about the state of the environment. And do you remember when that was and what, if anything, brought that on? Yeah, actually, um, I was a member, I was living in Canmore, Alberta, and uh, I spent a lot of time hiking, looking at glaciers and things like that, and I worked as a hiking guide. And uh, I had a couple stage epiphany, I guess you could say, um, the first stage was uh, watching a uh, presentation by the Alpine Club of Canada talking about climate change and the impact on melting glaciers in the Rockies. And this uh, jived pretty well with things that I'd seen myself. And uh, the second thing that kind of hammered at home was um, watching the documentary An Inconvenient Truth. Hmm. Yes. And seen that, that was, yeah, it was a bit of a disconnect for me watching the Vice President of the United States talk about glaciers so much. <laughs> it seemed a bit uh, random, and then it kind of jived that this is not just happening here, it's happening everywhere. And uh, the third stage epiphany was meeting with a glaciologist while on a hike uh, named Dr. Sean Marshall, who studies the glaciers in depth. And um, we were on a field trip as part of a climate change conference uh, on the Athabasca Glacier, which is actually the headwaters for where the tar sands companies get their name, get their um, their water, and um, in Jasper National Park, and I uh, he taught he he had asked me if I knew where the river flowed from there, and he and I said no, and he said well it flows down through 1,500 kilometers from here to the tar sands of northern Alberta, and it's the largest water withdrawal from an ecosystem on planet Earth, and no one's talking about it, and so that was a bit of a an epiphany for me that there was this giant project just getting underway then uh, that wasn't really a part of our societal conversation just yet, so I decided to find out more. Cool. And uh, in the movie, you focus you focus on a, a lot of the impact 
uh, of the oil sands, but you focus in particular on the how it affects the water. Yeah, uh, the sort of the story device, if you will, was uh, I would uh, climb up to the hydrologic apex, Mount Snowdome is a hydrologic apex of North America. It means it's basically the water summit. So from from there, a drop of water flows into one of three oceans. There's only two places in the world like that, and one of them is in Jasper National Park. And uh, so I decided to follow a, an imaginary drop of water from that summit, that water summit, down the river to see what happened to it. And so that became the, the focus of the film, Water. And so the glacier is the way I understand it is melting and that's part of what feeds the river. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but sh- surely the, the river I assume is not going to dry up once the glacier is melted. There must be some more to it than that. Yeah, there is more to it than that. What we found out, we thought initially that the glaciers provided the vast majority of water, but it turns out it's not the glaciers themselves, but, uh, which are at the headwaters, but rather the snowpack in the mountains itself that are, uh, uh a huge contributor to the, the 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 river levels in that river, and it turns out those are kind of in trouble because of ch- climate change as well. It's really changing the the mountain snowpacks, and the scientific information that I was getting certainly jived with all uh, all of the things that I was seeing as a backcountry skier in the winter. You know, noticing many drastic changes, ever diminishing snowpacks, and that kind of thing. So. So that was uh, that fit with my personal knowledge as well. So the oil sands are uh, emitting greenhouse gases, and also the the oil that that is produced through the oil sands when that's burned out emits greenhouse gases, and that causes glaciers to melt. Is there more uh, more to the relationship between the oil sands and the river, or that that glacier you mentioned, than that, or is is that the extent of it? Well. I guess the the key thing that I focused on was the the sort of interconnectivity between this industry at the other end of the river and the glacier, and it struck me as kind of ironic that, you know, in one of the most beautiful places in the world, Jasper National Park was connected by this cosmic thread, this river, uh, to one of the ugliest places in the world. And um, so, yeah, I was always struck by the irony of that. Um, they do, and, and the irony of the, these companies depending on the snowpack, but actually, um, actually changing the co- the constitution of that snowpack. So it was quite a an eye opener for me to to see the interconnectivity of all this. So, so the the companies in the oil sands they depend on the river and the water flowing through the river. They do, they do, yeah. They they depend on the mountain snowpack, as do many municipalities downstream. Um, the Athabasca is kind of a more northerly river, so it um, it flows a little bit north of Edmonton. So it's not um, that much, other than Jasper and Hinton, it's not much, and and the town of Athabasca, it's not that much used by municipalities. Although there are First Nations as well that really depend on on the water, specifically Fort Mackay and Fort Chippewan, and that was a big part of our discoveries is um, how they were interacting with. Uh, oil companies and, and how difficult it was for them in the midst of this huge, giant boom. Right. What is the, the dependency? Like the, the oil, for what do the oil companies need oh. the water? Oh, sorry, yeah. Um, so the oil science companies require four, roughly four barrels of fresh water to make one barrel of oil, depending on what part of the process they're in. And um, 
the they require they turn the water in there's two different kinds of oil sands mining uh one is open pit mining yes and the other other is uh what's called in situ where they essentially steam underground caverns of bitumen to liquefy the bitumen and then pull it out and uh Can, can you just explain what bitumen is sure yeah bitumen is um well, they call it oil, but it's it's not oil. It's uh, a cousin of oil. So it's a hydrocarbon cousin of oil, and it's a it's a much more difficult resource. It's um, much more difficult. It requires a lot more natural gas. Most a good chunk of Canada's natural gas is going to this one industry now, and it also requires a lot of um, water to to make it. And the water in so, open- so the, the the bitumen is a cousin of oil that they transform into the oil that we use exactly yeah they, they transform it into transportation fuels they have to add what's called diluent which is condensate from natural gas in order to make it flow because it's basically if you hold it in your hand bitumen it's basically a ball of dirt with petroleum in it crush it in your hand uh, very different than conventional oil that we you know you can that you can kind of that flows freely right Right. Okay. So you were explaining the the two different types. There's the surface mining and in situ, and, and I, I think you were explaining the water usage. Yeah. So the for the for the tar sands mine, open pit mines, they use um, basically they put it in a giant vat. They put a bunch of water inside a vat and then stir it around, and then um, they have processes to separate the sand and oil. So the water is used for that. And then in situ, it's actually um, turned into steam. The water's turned into steam using natural gas. And it's um, then uh, separated. It's Sorry, it's pumped underground to steam the underground caverns in order to liquefy the bitumen because it's rock hard when, to begin with. So they liquefy it, and then they bring it up in a collector well. So, so both of those processes, enormous amounts of um, water is required. In fact, we find with all unconventional resources – with each passing day, we need more and more water to get less and less oil. Do you have an idea how, what, say, percentage of the water coming down that river they use? And also, how does that actually impact the environment? Mm-hmm. Well, um, the companies would say that uh, they throw around statistics, and it, it, and it varies from company to company, and it also varies on the stage of the process they're in. But the companies would throw around statistics like uh, less than one-fifth of one percent of the annual flow of the river. Um, so those kind of numbers, they sound pretty um, pretty minimal. And uh, those kind of numbers sound pretty minimal. However, we found out that quoting the – we, we spoke to water scientist David Schindler. He's a world-renowned water scientist. And, and he told us that it's completely – irrelevant to look at the annual flow of the river because a river has an oscillating pattern depending on the season and snow melt. What matters is the low flow. So, for example, in January, it's very low flow. Most of the river's under ice. And that's sort of, uh, he described it as the eye of the needle through which fish have to pass. It's the toughest time of year for fish. And if the, the river levels are low because the companies are taking out lots during that time, then uh, the water level drops to a certain point where the fish, the river isn't oxygenated, oxygenated enough and the fish can't survive. So, so it's kind of difficult to see through the sort of smokescreen of the statistics that the um, uh, companies 
put out about how much and how much water they're taking and how and and uh, and what that actually means. But um, do you know if, do you know if there have been studies that have been done that say to look at in the month of January at that time what is the percentage that they're using and also to what extent that is impacting fish? Uh, yeah, there have been. Um, I think it's called limnology. Uh, I think that's the term. Uh, I know Dr. Schindler has studied uh, not that particular. He was looking more at particulates that come out and the impact uh, of. So there's two major problems with in terms of water. One is uh, the poisoning of water, and one is the removal of water. And these two processes interact with each other. So, for example, if you remove a lot of water from a river, then it's also going to get more contaminated when you put stuff in. So there's these two interactive processes. Um, I know, yeah, geez, this is a while now since I've read these studies. The studies that I'm aware of, I'm, I know there have been some to to look at the water flow and how much is taken, but there's more been done on contamination. Right. So, for example, Dr. Kevin Timoney did a study which we covered in the film, uh, and he presented his findings to, that was that scene where uh, he presented his findings to the people of Fort Chippewan. And what he found was that uh, contaminants traveling down the river, uh, if you drank the water from the tap that had been through the water filtration system downstream in Fort Chippewan, it was fine because it went through processes and it was treated. However, the people of Fort Chippewan, it's part of their culture's subsistence hunting culture. So they go out and they hunt the moose and deer and what have you. And they found that people who ate those kinds of country meats, wild food like that, were getting more sick than people who didn't engage in that kind of lifestyle, ironically, uh, because the contaminants were bioaccumulating in the food chain. And, uh, you know, right down from the smallest bugs all the way up to uh, to to the animals, the fish that eat them. And, um, and, uh, yeah, so those that he, he did a study on that. So, and also Dr. Schindler did a study on, um, the pulse of particulates that came out during winter of, uh, of contaminants that ended up in the snow, which would eventually end up in the river as well because they would melt. And, uh, and found that there was a significant, impact on the river um and that directly contradicted the alberta government's position at the time you mentioned that people were getting sick do you know what type of sick mm -hmm. yeah so um we interviewed one fellow his name's dr john o'connor and uh he was a doctor who was who had visited the community had quite a relationship with the community and he was quite struck by the amount of uh, cholangiocarcinoma, it's a bile duct cancer, very rare, very aggressive. And he was struck by the amount of cases he was seeing of this particular cancer. And it is linked to uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, PAHs, which are essentially what come out of the, the process in the tar sands. And um, he, he sort of was a whistleblower and he was censured for that. He almost lost his medical license. And then he, yeah, I actually was reading about that online. He got in, into a bit of trouble with uh, the the medical authorities in Alberta. Yeah, they um, censured him for quote causing undue alarm, and there was a a big investigation, and he was cleared of all the charges. And 
Um, but it uh, sort of serves as a, if you're going to be a whistleblower with this industry, you got to keep your head up kind of thing. Um, and uh, anyways, he his findings, his comments, as well as David Schindler's findings, prompted the Alberta government to uh, do a study on the cancer rates downstream. And this study, if I recall correctly, found that uh, there was a 30% chance, 30% higher than what would be expected chance to contract cancer in these downstream communities. And are you aware of any, have any opposing studies or studies been done with opposing results? Uh, I'm not aware of any. Um, one thing, one, one thing I would, and Dr. Kevin Timoney talked to us about this, and this was an interesting point. He said, when it comes to doing a study of a small community like that, then you have a statistical problem. It's uh, small numbers. Right. Right, it's only fifteen hundred people, so in the community. So even doing a study of every single person there, it's still very small numbers. And and Dr. Kevin Timney describes statistics as being a rather blunt instrument for measuring uh, impacts of pollutants. You know, statistically, because the numbers are so small of people. So, um, but you know, it's not rocket science. You know polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons cause cancer and they're essentially digging up large tracts of land and liberating a Pandora's box of horrific chemicals. Um, Dr. Schindler talked to us about how every element of the periodic table is represented when in that dirt, you know, it's just really foul stuff that nature has spent millions of years uh, sequestering, locking away safely so that animals and people can exist around it, but we're going in there and we're digging it all up and letting it fly all over the place. So, of course, it's going to cause problems. It's uh, ludicrous to suggest that it wouldn't. Hmm. So y- you mentioned there are two issues with the water. One is uh, the, the water pollution, and the other is the fact that they're simply taking water out of the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they when water is removed from, from the river, it must go somewhere. Mm. Uh, yes. Where does it do – they don't put it back in it eventually? or what happens? Right. Yeah. So the companies say that uh, they quote recycle it. Now, I'm not sure what they mean by recycling. To me, recycling is uh, you put it back in the river in exactly the same condition you took it out. Uh, however, only 10% of the water that's taken out of the river actually goes back, and that's the water that isn't process affected. It's used for um, heating and cooling purposes, but the other 90% gets. I guess you would could use the word recycled within their system, reused rather, within their system uh, up to 18 times, and then it becomes too laden with toxic chemicals in the process that they, they have to dump it into large tailing spawns. And those tailing spawns are, are so immense they can be seen from space, and um, they're uh, growing exponentially. Uh, yeah, I, I had no idea that those existed until I watched your movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you say that they can be seen from space, like, do you, do you have any an, an idea in terms of say square kilometers how big that is? Because I I don't feel like I have a good idea. What? Um, well, you could fill Lake Erie to uh-huh. a depth of I think ten centimeters or something with all the sludge that's out there. So Lake Erie. So it, these are called tailings ponds, but they're not ponds. They're lakes. They're and they're becoming great lakes. They're very very large. <laughs> 
and they're just sitting there. There's no the industry has no plan. They don't they have no clue what they're going to do. Um, they're just basically sitting there and um, enduring hazard for migrating wildlife. And, um, and yeah, the, the ponds themselves. I learned from the movie. They're basically. I kind of got the impression that they're big oil spills. They're 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 covered in something like oil. Yeah, yeah. In fact, if you get close to them, you look at them. It looks like a giant oil spill in a lake. Um, it's full of toxic. It's completely toxic chemicals, and some of the the ponds are more or less lined, but many of them, even the new ones, leak. Um, one of the people we spoke to uh, came across one that was basically leaking into a bush um, because it ha- it didn't have a, a fourth retaining wall that they're supposed to have. Are are, are you saying all, like all of them leak? Yeah, they're pretty. They all leak because they they they're in porous surfaces. Um, you know, they're earthen dams, so earthen dams are are unstable. I mean, as an example of that, I, I predicted in my film uh, that there would be large tailings dams breaches into the Athabasca River, and it was ironic that in the time since I made that prediction in the film, it hasn't actually happened in the tar sands themselves. However. It has happened in Obed Mine at Hinton, which also which leaked a whole bunch of coal slurry into the Athabasca River, and it also happened in Mount Pauly quite dramatically here in British Columbia. A huge, huge tailings dam breached. Um, it was a complete regulatory failure. Um, yeah, so so tailings dams. You know, anytime you've got an earthen dam full of toxic chemicals and a government that just isn't uh, doesn't have the wherewithal to make the polluters pay and to make the polluters clean up their mess and to charge them a bond and before they even begin uh, production. Anytime you've got that kind of a, a dynamic in play, you're going to have major, major accidents, and we've seen a number of accidents recently. I think I read online that uh, something about how the uh, companies in the oil sands, they – the, the government will only let them build tailings ponds, and I may have this wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. where they, if they have a plan to, and I don't remember what the word is, but there's a word where they like return it to its original state. Ah, uh, yeah. So the reclamation. Right. So that's what I call the fiction of reclamation. It's, um, it's kind of like a corpse. If you put lipstick on it, it's still a corpse. Um, so essentially they take, a functioning ecosystem, a boreal wetland ecosystem, which is quite a complex ecosystem, and they turn it into uh, an open pit mine, and they take the what the industry refers to, what I call boreal forest, this industry calls overburden. So in other <laughs> words, trees and the rocks and the stuff that gets in the way of the mining, and they take a portion of this and they actually – uh, freeze it. Sometimes they do this, and the idea being that they can um, sort of freeze it in time and then throw it back on afterwards, and it'll somehow regenerate. <laughs> it's quite, it's quite ludicrous. I've been through these uh, these re- so-called reclaimed areas, and uh, I remember there was a tree, and I went and sort of shook it a bit and then I pulled on it gently and it started to pull out of its roots and you know it's like oh whoops (laughs) 
And, you know, so this is, you know, and they're very straight lines. It's obviously not a natural ecosystem. It looks like a tree farm. And is it, is it possible that the, uh, reclaimed land that you're, the reclaimed land that you visited was, was just not far enough along yet in its process of rebuilding? Well, actually, no, this was the demonstration plot of Syncrude, their oldest, um, reclaimed area. And so this was the one in best shape. And, you know, really what we need to know is that these companies, they like to hang on. They have administrative sleight of hand that they do to hang on to these reclaimed lands for as long as they can because they don't have to start reclaiming it while they still have the, a lease on it. They, it's only when they give up the lease. And I remember one time a couple of years ago there was a, a giant parade and fanfare that, you know, Suncor had reclaimed it officially and got the certificate from the Alberta government as first acre of land. You know, after 40 years of tar sands mining, they hold a ticker tape parade because they reclaimed an acre. It's ludicrous. It's insanity. I mean, they're, you know, it really is a fiction. It's just, it's a whole farce. It's quite funny, actually. Well, it would, it's funny, except it isn't. It's kind of sad. So there's the issue of the water, water pollution, water use, uh, tailings ponds. Are, are there other concerns that you have about the effect of the tar sands, or are those the, the primary concerns? Yeah, actually, um, I'm working on a new film. It's called To the Ends of the Earth. And this film actually looks at the economics behind this. So basically, the, the fundamental assumption we have in our society is that this is good for the economy, but I've... I've been uncovering quite a lot of evidence that suggests otherwise. Uh, for example, I spoke with uh, Dr. Steve Larder, a professor from the University of Calgary, who did research on the in situ, the steaming mm -hmm. part of the tar sands. And um, he found that, uh, I believe, the they measure something called a steam-to-oil ratio, and that ratio is a measure of how energy efficient they are. And... What he found is that up to 30% of the projects in, in situ, and in situ is the vast majority of the resource, that the open pit mining is actually quite, I think it's only 15% or something. The rest, but it's the most visible 15%, but the rest is in situ, basically the industrialization of the boreal forest. And, and uh, he found that these in situ projects actually consume more energy in the form of natural gas than they give back to society. So... Uh, from an energy return standpoint, if you think of energy returns as cap capital return on investment, you invest money, you get more money as profit. Right. Well, you know, energy returns is we invest energy, we need energy as profit in order to function as a civilization the way we have. And uh, a lot of these projects are either energy neutral or they're energy negative, meaning they consume more energy than they give back to society and and I'm not sure how you can run an economy on, on that kind of a ratio. I don't think you can. So, so I mean, we'll, it remains to be seen when this whole – the bottom is going to fall out of this whole, <laughs> this whole project. It's, uh, so you're saying it's financially viable, but, I, I mean, they're obviously making a profit financially. Yeah. Yeah, they're, ma they're making a profit now. Um, they are not – I'm sure if you were to ask oil companies, what are the profits like in unconventional resources versus uh, conventional resources? And conventional resources, you essentially you expend energy and money and capital for 
exploration costs, but once you find it, you drill a well and boom, it, it bubbles to the surface and a story, right? You don't have to upgrade it. You just have to refine it and then put it into someone's gas tank. And that's pretty cheap. But the capital investment that's being made in the tar sands is absolutely astronomical. We've never seen capital investment like this in, in oil projects ever. And, um, obviously they're only going to make as many profits as, uh, uh, you know, over and above the capital that they've invested. So profits in the oil companies globally are going down because um, we're running out of the good stuff. And uh, that's actually a, a pretty fundamental shift in society because um, our society, 85%, some would say more, of all economic transactions we have have some footprint of oil in them. So, for example, you buy a shirt. Well, you know, how is it? You know, the cotton was, you know, combined and, you know, with, you know, and then it was shipped around the world and et cetera, et cetera. You know, if, think of oil like in the room you're in, you know, what what in there doesn't have the footprint of oil, the paints on the walls, the everything, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a transportation fuel that enables globalized trade. So when you start mining the bottom of the barrel like this, then an economy that relies that much on cheap energy is uh, is destined to fail. So, well, so I, 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 I can certainly see how it would have an impact on kind of everything, or mm-hmm. um, like it would co- the, the rising price of oil causes the could cause the rising price of everything theoretically. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, for example, we've had recent economic events that we've. I believe, interpreted the wrong way. So the 2008 global economic meltdown, yes, it was caused by shoddy banking practices, derivatives, hedge funds, whatever, those kinds of things. Uh, However, one thing we never seem to talk about is that the price of oil hit a record high, $147 a barrel, uh, just a little, just before that economic meltdown happened. So we are... We are, our economy has become enormously dependent and therefore enormously vulnerable because of our reliance on oil, especially now that we're plumbing the, the more difficult deposits of the world in order to replace our reserves. So we're, we're looking at a fundamentally different society over time. Hmm. Before we get into what, I, what you might think some of the solutions are, I want to ask you also about greenhouse gas emissions, which we haven't really discussed yet. Is that a, that a concern for you also? Absolutely, yeah. The tar sands oil production is a form of oil production that is that makes oil as carbon intensive as coal. And the reason is it's not exactly oil, it's bitumen. And do you, do you, are you saying that the production is as carbon intensive or the, the uh, con- consuming of the oil? Uh, the, entire, the entire cycle. Right. The entire cycle, you know, from production to uh, they have to also upgrade this kind of oil, which requires a lot of energy, and um, that upgrading is uh, a process that you don't have to do with conventional oil, and then you've got to refine it like you would conventional oil. So it's a, it's a multi-stage process, and I'm not even sure we're factoring in the vast quantities of natural gas and that some of which comes from British Columbia, a lot of which a lot of which nowadays is being fracked. So that's another energy intensive 
uh, greenhouse gas emitting process. So that has to be factored in in the full life cycle analysis. So when people say that there's 30% more emissions than conventional oil, I think that number is way, way too low because we're not factoring the inputs to it. And, um, and But, of course, the inputs, it could be made with natural gas. It could also be made with nuclear energy. And there have been uh, some fairly extensive processes in Saskatchewan, uh, governmental processes to build a nuclear power plant in North Battleford to feed the tar sands um, and those kinds of things. So it's kind of really what we're looking at over time here is we're, we're in an energy death spiral right now um, in many different ways. Clearly, the, the world is very dependent on oil, as you pointed out. Uh, what are yep. what do you propose as a path forward, and what are what do you think are some of the solutions? Yeah, so in terms of solutions, environmental groups will often talk about renewable energy. And so is it realistic to look at just renewable energy? Well, the answer is not, not exactly. We need a diversified portfolio of energy in order to make this work. Um, one thing we certainly don't need is unconventional oil. And there are even worse resources like oil shale that we definitely don't need. Um, energy negative type things that are hugely damaging to the environment. We can get by, numerous studies have been done, we can get by on, on, on conventional oil and renewables. So if we aggressively pursue a path of renewables and if we sort of, uh, we need to localize our economies because the economies that are localized when the price of oil is really, really high are the only economies left standing. So we really need to do that rather aggressively. Um, we need to, uh, I mean, it's difficult to talk about this without talking about our political process. Our political process is, uh, I mean, a lot of people believe we live in a democracy. I don't, I don't believe we do. I think we live in an oligarchy. And, um, and I think that massive uprisings of, uh, peaceful uprisings of, of very committed citizens is the only thing that's going to shift, turn the tide here. Can you, can you explain what an oligarchy is? I'm not familiar with that. Right. So an oligarchy is uh, rule by a wealthy class. Ah. So instead of rule by the people, uh, you, you have a rule by the wealthy class. So, um, and, and that is essentially, you look at the political process, particularly in the United States where the super PACs uh, is a way that they essentially launder money and get around campaign finance rules. Our prime minister's broken campaign finance rules and was fined $52,000 for it. And then he stole an election. And, you know, so the, po the political process is, is quite a farce. It's not in any way, shape or form a democracy anymore. And it's becoming less democratic by the day. You look at trade rules, in, trade pacts, uh, trade treaties internationally, like uh, FIPA, for example. Um, these kinds of things are giving enormous amount of power to corporations. Corporations are now more powerful than governments. And um, so to change everything, we need everyone. We need everyone to get out on the barricades. And Well, actually, that's not even true that we need everyone. Um, there's some sociological studies done on the, on the French Revolution that found that it was only 17% of society, French society, that was pushing hard for a change. But that 17% was pushing very, very hard. They, they were going hungry. 
uh, was part of it. And um, they, um, 17% of a society committed to the core can really shift that society. So if we can marshal those kinds of resources, get people on the streets, and uh, really getting in the faces of of these uh, these oligarchs and um, and and the politicians that are in their pockets, then we can start to shift this and and create uh, a society that actually is sustainable, both economically and environmentally. A couple of minutes ago, you were saying that you mentioned a diversified energy portfolio. Um, so are you saying that we do need oil to some extent? Yeah. I mean, the way we have our society built right now, there's no way that we can just, you know, get rid of it as part of our energy. I mean, it accounts for, I believe, uh, 85% of all the energy we use is hydrocarbon energy, so coal, oil, and natural gas. And I think oil is something like 40 or 50% of that total. And um, so we, we're going to need it for a number of decades. But the real question is, do we need unconventional energy? And I think really what's happened here is we've entered into a new energy age without talking about it, where we're using unconventional energy. It's now 42% of everything we use. What do you mean by unconventional energy? Unconventional energy is all these different types of energy like um, tar sands bitumen is unconventional, oil shale in Utah, fracked natural gas, um, shale oil in the Bakken board of North Dakota. These are all uh, the bottom of the barrel kind of resources. And without really having a conversation, they just changed the name tar sands to oil sands because it sounded familiar, but it's not actually oil. And so we just ventured into this without having a discussion as a society because if anything is a inflection point, that you need to shift your energy system. It's starting to develop resources like this. That that requires a massive societal conversation that we just didn't have. We just let the markets decide, and and now we're in this mess. So, um, so uh, essentially, we will need oil for approximately another thirty, forty years. However, renewable and, energy. And after the after the thirty, forty years, what do you see happening? Well. Essentially, thirty—I mean, thirty to forty years. You know, we have ten years to massively put a dent in our carbon emissions or face globalized chaos that lasts hundreds of years and changes civilization as we know it. Um, and we only have ten years because once you burn carbon, it stays in the atmosphere for for centuries. So that's why the international scientific community has given us this deadline. So it takes a long time to shift your energy s- system over. Um, and, and even when energy systems do shift, so for example, when whale oil, whale oil was a global energy source, when it wrapped up its production, it still hung on for a little while. But kerosene was quickly taking over uh, as a new energy source. The fossil fuel age had begun. And uh, so we, we need these, we're going to need these resources. However, what we don't need is unconventional resources. So bottom of the barrel resources, tar sands, bitumen, we don't need it. Um, oil shale in Utah, that's insanity. It's completely crazy. We don't need that either. Um, you know, these companies that refer to it as innovation, it's not innovation, it's madness. It's crazy. Um, everything gets more costly, more environmentally damaging, um, and it's, it's what I call an energy death spiral. 
uh, once you start doing this stuff. Um, the battery technology for wind energy, the, one of the main problems with wind energy is the intermittency. The wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. So you need battery technology in order to uh, create on-demand energy to the grid, which is what we've become used to in North America. Uh, and so if we if we have renewable energy, we've got to sort of live a bit more within nature's limits, you know, use energy when when uh, when it's available. But of course, we're not really into doing that. So so the good news is the 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 battery technology is improving, that they'll be able to store energy and, and thus be able to provide it on demand to the grid. But we're going to have to tighten our belt significantly uh, as a society and uh, and conserve like we've never conserved before. In order to do that, we need an economic model that actually recognizes that unlimited growth is, is not desirable. Uh, growth is not desirable anymore. Uh, we need a ste- what's called a steady-state economy. Steady-state economy is one that lives within nature's limits, uh, and it's basically it is the default position of humanity anyways. We had a st- steady-state economy until the Industrial Revolution. And um, so, and people say, well, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to go back to agrarian times? Well, actually, from an energy returns standpoint, energy profit that I was talking about earlier, we're already in agrarian times. When you look at the tar sands, the, the energy returns are, are, are about the same as pre-industrial revolution agrarian societies. So we're already there. You know, it's not a question of going there. We're already there. Uh, and, and each passing day, we get closer to to not being able to sustain this giant civilization we've built. We're living way too large right now. Hmm. What would you say to people who would, would agree with you that, uh, about the, the oil being expensive, mm-hmm. uh, but say that, and that's going to negatively impact the economy, but mm-hmm. renewable energy like wind power is, and maybe it's not, I, I assume it's more, even more expensive. So we'll have an even, even, greater negative impact on the economy, what would you say to that? Um, well, I think we're going to have negative impacts on the economy regardless because we are sourcing fuels right now that can't do the job the way they used to do. And the energy return on investment is too low. Um, to give you an example, the energy return on investment for a w- wind turbines is, is a, what they call a ratio, EROI, energy return on investment ratio, of 15 to 1. So, if, you know, one, one energy of, one unit of energy, one joule of energy that you expend gives you back 15. That's not too bad. You can run a, a modern civilization with that ratio. However, in the tar sands, it's as low as five to one or energy negative. So they can't do the job. They just can't do the job from an energy return standpoint. So that, that's a non-starter economically. Now, it's that's a tough argument to say today because they're making money hand over fist, but right. they're making money hand over fist on on the basis of huge capital investments, capital investments which these companies earned during the age of conventional oil. That 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 money's going to run out, and they're going to have to continue. It, these projects are going to get more costly over time, not less costly, because even within the tar sands, we we pick the low-hanging fruit first, and then we get to the the really bad of the bad in the tar sands, and we're we're moving towards that steadily. These deposits get more difficult, uh, more costly over time. So, 
But wind energy, for example, is always pretty much the same. But in order to embrace wind energy, we need a new economic model because it's it's decentralized. Right now we've got highly centralized economic practices with um, you know large oil companies, powerful CEOs, what have you, um, that basically all the money concentrates up top. And those people up top, the billionaires and what have you, don't want to be knocked off their perch. So we need to, you know, wind energy is profoundly, renewable energy is profoundly democratic. I can put a wind turbine on my land. I can throw a solar panel on top of my house and generate my own energy. And then I don't need these people. Well, they're quite afraid of that. They want us to need them. They want us to be hooked in, mainlined on their on their system. So, you know, it, it requires rethinking economics altogether. It's not just, oh, let's throw up a bunch of wind turbines and we're fine. No, we have to rebuild our entire economy and, uh, and our entire, you know, this whole neoliberal uh, market fundamentalism, which is, you know, let the markets decide whatever needs to be decided. Yeah. Uh, that's insanity. It's, you know, the market has neither soul to damn nor body to incarcerate. You know, it's just this, you know, unthinking thing. And it's not about what people want. It's what it's about what the companies tell us we need. It's a, there's a difference. Right. So, uh, yeah. So it's everything right now. We're at a point in our history where everything needs to change. Our entire economic thinking, our way of interacting, relating with people, it all how to, you know, the collective, you know, living in collectives, you know, for example, unions need to be rebuilt and being stronger. Uh, we need to, yeah, it's, it's technology is not coming to the rescue. We have to tighten our belts. There's no magic bullet. There's no, I didn't meet anyone in the research for this new film or the old one that ever told me about a magic bullet that was just going to step in and, oh, we're all of a sudden going to discover this new thing and everything will be fine. And then we can keep on going. There's there's nothing like that. So so we can either and and we have to understand that we can either have a livable planet and a functioning economy, or we can have tar sands oil, but we can't have both. Or would you say that we could have a functional economy and a planet in a bad state, mm-hmm. or we could have an economy that maybe in the short term experience a bit more stress, but then at least we can the planet will survive on far into the future. Yeah, well, for example, I mean, you look at some of the climate events that are happening, extreme weather events are becoming commonplace. We're having one in 100 year floods every 10 years. Um, Hurricane Sandy cost $5 billion to clean up, and that's just Hurricane Sandy. And, you know, there were floods in Colorado, uh, a while ago, one in 1,000 year floods that cost, that was a billion dollars for the cleanup. So they, these are hugely devastating to our economies. And if we're constantly reeling from these kinds of things, then um, there is no economy anymore. Mm-hmm. There's just survival. So, um, so yeah, I think the, our best plan right now is to gradually phase out the tar sands within a five, 10 year time period. Don't allow it to grow. And, um, as part of don't allow it to grow, would you would you say don't build more pipelines, which I, I know is a controversial issue right now? Yeah, pipelines are, are basically carbon corridors. They're 
they're exporting huge amounts of carbon in our atmosphere. They're, they're allowing, they need the pipeline capacity to grow. If they don't have that pipeline capacity, they can't grow. And, um, if they grow, then the carbon emissions spiral out of control. They're already out of control, but they spiral even more out of control. So pipelines are the, un, the industry and the government understands that they are the key to the economic success of these unconventional resources. And that's why people are fighting them so hard because, um, there are many of us that want a livable planet and a, and a functional economy. And we know that this isn't the path to do that. So, so we fight these things. We get out there on the barricades. Hmm. If you could convince people in, in society to take some sort of action towards the kind of energy type of future that you want, Mm-hmm. What, what would it be if you could convince everyone to do one thing? Yeah. Well, there's always that's, that statement by Mahatma Gandhi, you know, be the change you wish to see in the world. So there's a big emphasis in our society on personal responsibility, and I think that's important, and you can't argue against that. However, um, that is also the narrative of market fundamentalism, that this is up to individuals to do on their own. But this is not up to individuals to do on their own because we live in a society and, you know, I can't uh, drive a hybrid because it costs way more money than a regular car. Well, why is that? Because the government that's in power doesn't subsidize it the way they subsidize oil. Well, you know, it's all part of interconnectedness of a society. And uh, so I think probably the most important thing that individuals can do is just get politically active and, uh, you know, give your politicians a rough ride. They're, they're getting way too easy a ride, and we're not giving them a hard enough time, and they're not accountable to us. They, they're accountable to uh, large corporations and things like that, and, and because of that, they're just not passing bills and what have you, legislation that's in the public interest. And, um, and I think pe- people need to learn more that, you know, don't take my word for any of this. Go out and find out your own kinds of things about this. Uh, form your own views and mm-hmm. make those views are educated because there's, you know, the, the quality of the dialogue in society today on both sides of the spectrum are, is quite poor in my view. Um, you know, far too ma- far too few of us know a lot about this. And, um, so it behooves us to, to learn more because our future is at stake. Hmm. So to summarize, I think you're saying, uh, take responsibility, educate yourself, and then take action to influence politicians. Yeah, that... yeah. and get out there on the barricades. <laughs> <laughs> Join us. <laughs> uh, so a few more quick questions, not that, which won't necessarily be, di- be directly on the topic of the oil sands, but I'm just curious what your answers are. If you could... Um, was, actually, first let me talk about your other documentary, which you mentioned. Sure. Um, to the ends of the earth. Can you talk a little bit about that and when that's coming out? Sure. Yeah. So to the ends of the earth is a feature documentary and I chose that title because that's essentially where we're going both geographically and geologically to look for oil and gas nowadays. And Mm -hmm. this, this ends of the earth search has profound economic implications uh, for our society. Um, You know, geologically we're sourcing deposits, as I mentioned earlier, energy negative, um, huge plans that companies like Exxon and ConocoPhillips are throwing billions of dollars at resources like oil shale in Utah. 
resources that threaten the Colorado River, uh, which 36 million people depend on. And um, there's um, all kinds of um, – and also geographically, we're going to the ends of the earth. I took a trip up to the Arctic and filmed uh, some of the concerns of people up there. Uh, for example, Inuit, they have a subsistence hunting practices where they hunt seals and narwhal and um they are quite concerned about the effects of seismic under underwater exploration which uh basically um blows up the eardrums of marine mammals if they get close Hmm. and um so they're afraid that the animals their traditional food source will will vanish and um and also um sounds like it's not very nice for the mammals themselves either yeah no they (laughs) it blows up their eardrums yeah they pulled Seals, they find seals that are deaf, and, and they pull uh, animals out of the water after hunting them that have blood coming out of their ears and not where they were shot either. Mm. <laughs> so from seismic. So, uh, yeah, it's quite um, it's quite a damaging thing. Um, and um, also I, I take a look at, as well at the tar sands and the energy negative nature of uh, the, the direction we're going in. And... Um, and the economics of all of this and what it all means. And, uh, and I look at alternatives of how we can, uh, shift this into something positive and build a new, a new beautiful world that we all know is possible. Where can people find out about that film to the uh, ends of the earth? That one I'm going to be doing, uh, it's, so it's probably going to release it in March and I'm going to be doing a crowdfunding campaign, uh, probably in, uh, February. Or, yeah, I'll release it in April and I'll do a crowdfunding campaign in February. So probably that'll be the first time that um, I open it up to an audience. And Okay, so at this point there's no website or anything? No, nothing like that, yeah. All right. And the White Water Black Gold, where can people find out about that one? Yeah, so www.whitewaterblackgold.com. And you can find, you can see a trailer to the film there. Uh, order a DVD. You can uh, find out more about the issue. I've got screening guides for people who want to do community screenings, and uh, as well as a number of links that uh, help people find out more about the tar sands and what's going on up there. All right. So back to those last few questions I wanted to ask you. Um, you've done one documentary. You have another one coming up. Obviously, you'd like everyone to watch those. Aside from your documentaries, if you could convince everyone on the, on the planet to either watch one documentary or read one book, what would it be? Oh, geez. My current favorite right now is called uh, This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein. And uh, I think it's a really quite incredibly well-researched and very fascinating read. And it gives... Uh, the most succinct and, and adequate outline of what we need to do as a civilization to shift this that I've ever seen in, in anyone describe. And I think she's just a brilliant writer, and so I would leave people out of that book. All right. And who, uh, aside from yourself, again, do you admire most in your, say, the field of uh, saving the planet in general? Um, I guess I, I would say Naomi Klein as well, uh, just because um, she has a really profound understanding of what needs to change. And so many of us in society don't have that understanding. We think the market-based solutions are going to work and these kinds of fairy tales. And 
And she just cuts through all of that with a scalpel, and it's brilliant. And so, I, yeah, I would say her for sure. All right. And uh, is there anything that we have not discussed that you would, that you, or that I didn't ask that you wish wish I would have asked, or that you'd like you'd like people to know? Um, no, just check out whitewaterblackgold.com and. Um, and, yeah. and and around February or March, start searching Google for to the ends of the earth. Yeah, yeah, I'll be reaching out with a crowdfunding campaign to to uh, crowdsource and and build an audience and get all kinds of people on board with uh, with the project. And uh, so I hope people will be will be uh, interested and engaged at that time. Yes, I will be looking forward to that myself. Okay. Um, so I guess uh, this is probably a great place to wrap up. Thank you very much for your time. I I learned a lot from your documentary and then also, again, from this conversation, so I appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Uh, and for listeners, I will include all of the links that you mentioned, David, uh, including a link to your website and, and the documentaries uh, on thegreenpodcast.com on the show notes. So thanks again. <laughs>